Welcome to the Crown Council Mentor of the Month program. This is Steve Anderson. As we work with teams all over the country through the Total Patient Service Institute and the Crown Council, we often get asked, what does it take to have a winning team? Now, every team wants to win, and knowing what you have to do to win is the starting point to designing a winning strategy. So the answer to the question, what does it really take to win, can be found not in an answer itself, but in some important questions that every team needs to ask if they want to win. What follows are four critical questions for any team that wants to win. Answer these four questions with your team, and you'll be well on your way to having the team that's in the game to win. Question number one, what game are you playing? Now, if you had 10 or 12 athletes from different sports that all got together for a Saturday morning game, the first decision that would have to be made would be this. What game are we going to play? Basketball, football, soccer, baseball. Short of that decision, everyone would want to play their favorite game all at the same time. It would be chaos, and the game wouldn't last long. In the same way, what game is each member of your team playing? In other words, what does each individual think the purpose of the practice is? Give each person on your team a small piece of paper and ask them to write down the purpose of the practice. Don't let them discuss. Don't let them look at each other's paper. Just give them the paper and ask them to write it down. Then be prepared for a shock. Unless you've talked about this almost every day, the answers that you'll see will be as varied as the number of team members that you have. Each will most likely have a different answer. The answers will range from make money to make patients happy to serve people, help people with their dental needs, Provide quality dentistry. Now, all of these are worthy purposes, but different perceived purposes can create some problems. For example, if you were to look at the typical job description, it includes a laundry list of tasks for which that specific person is responsible. Tasks like file insurance, collect payments, greet patients, answer the phone. Job descriptions typically contain what the team member is supposed to do. So let's say one of the tasks on my job description is answer the phone, and I perceive that my purpose is to get the money. When the phone rings, then I answer it by saying, thanks for calling ABC Dental. This is Steve. How are you going to pay? Cash, credit card, or check? Let's just get that out of the way up front, because if you aren't paying, you aren't coming. So, did I do my job? Yes. My job description says, answer the phone, and that's exactly what I did. But how I answer the phone is determined by what I perceive that my purpose is. The job description says what I'm supposed to do. The purpose defines how I do it. So, what's the game you're playing? Or what's the purpose of your practice? How clearly have you defined it in your own mind? And is it in writing? Have you shared it with your team? When was the last time you reviewed it and discussed it? 
Football coaching great Vince Lombardi is reported to have started the first practice of every football season with the same lecture that began with him holding a football and making this simple statement. This is a football. He would then proceed to describe its dimensions, the materials from which it was made, and how to hold it. In other words, he kept the team focused on the basics of the game. That's why my favorite practice purpose statements are simple, memorable, and actionable. For example, for years we've talked about using the following statement as a working purpose. To create happy paying patients who repeat and refer and pay more than it costs to serve them. Let me repeat that. To create happy paying patients who repeat and refer and pay more than it costs to serve them. If you want an even shorter, more memorable version, just go with this. To create happy paying patients. Now, let's take a look at that purpose in a little bit more detail. First, create happy paying patients. If patients are happy, that means that we've done our job and our part to invite them into the practice, and we've delivered on the promise of delivering quality clinical care with personal concern to the point that they're happy to pay for it. Two, repeat and refer. Patients continue coming back and referring others because of how they feel when they're with us. Unfortunately, they are not good judges of the quality of the clinical care we provide. I wish they were. The reason they keep coming back is because how they're treated as an individual. That's what they talk about to other people. That's why they repeat and refer. Third, pay more than it costs to serve them. Part of the success of the practice is running it effectively and successfully, running it profitably. So there you have it in one simple statement. All three of the essential areas of a successful practice, clinical excellence, personal service, and effective management. So there's your purpose, to create happy paying patients who repeat and refer and pay more than it costs to serve them. Now, with that purpose embedded in my mind, now, when I go answer the phone, I'll do everything I can to make sure that the potential new patient schedules an appointment, shows up, accepts treatment, and pays. That's what happens when I'm on purpose, when I know what my purpose is. So what's the purpose of your practice? What game are you playing? A winning team knows what game they're playing. It's defined and it's clear. So here's the starting point. One, define the purpose of your practice. If you've done it in the past, revisit your purpose and update it. Make sure it reflects what you think is important. If you're not clear, borrow our sample purpose to create happy paying patients who repeat and refer and pay more than it costs to serve them. Second, share your purpose with the team. Discuss it, talk about how it applies, and then how it plays out in day-to-day -day activity in the office. Third, make it visible. Hang your purpose up in the break room where you can review it and refer to it often with the whole team. 
Remember, purpose drives not only how people do their job, but the tasks on which they choose to focus. If I remember on a daily basis that my purpose is to create happy paying patients who repeat and refer and pay more than it costs to serve them, then I'll be more likely to focus on and engage in activities that are in line with that purpose. I'll also engage in my work in a different way. Let me explain. Let's say I'm working in the front office and someone calls from the local office supply store trying to sell us office supplies. Typically, the person answering this call would just jettison this call so she could get back to work. But if I'm on purpose, I'm always thinking about how I can create a happy paying patient. So instead of discarding the call and the caller, I say something different. I say something more like this. Thanks so much for calling. We would love to talk to you about buying office supplies. Now, at this point, the caller will probably pass out from shock that you're so interested in what they have to sell. (laughs) Then you can continue. You might say, in fact, our doctor has a great program where she does business with people who do business with her. So let me ask you a question. Who's your dentist? Now, you've effectively directed the conversation so that now you're on purpose creating a happy paying patient. Here's another example. I was in a dental office the other day when the fire marshal came in. Now, what was the fire marshal there to do? That's right, the annual fire inspection. Now, the fire marshal never stops to ask for permission when they come in. They just walk in and start looking around. Now, this fire marshal happened to be tall and a very good-looking guy. Now, I know that because within just a few moments of his arrival, most of the women on the team started following him around the office, asking him if there was anything they could do to help. By the time he was done with the inspection, he was cornered and surrounded. So, being on purpose, I broke through the crowd, introduced myself, and said, how did we do on the inspection today? He told me that the office passed inspection and that the fire extinguishers would need to be recharged within the next few months. I thanked him by saying this, thanks for coming in and keeping us safe. And then I asked him a question. So let me ask you, who's your dentist? He responded, oh, I haven't been to the dentist in years. In fact, I have this one tooth that keeps hurting on and off and I guess I'm just waiting until it gets bad enough that I have to go. After hearing his story, I responded like this. So it sounds like you're waiting for the fire to break out in your mouth before you call the fire department. He laughed, and then I said, look, you came in today to do your inspection to keep us safe from a disaster. We'd like to return the favor. Let's get you scheduled right now to come back for an inspection of your mouth so we can see what's really going on and prevent a fire from breaking out in your mouth or worse. Make sense? He immediately agreed. We scheduled the appointment and he came back two days later. When you have a team that understands what the game or the purpose is, everyone starts engaging in meaningful activity that's purpose-driven, not just activity for activity's sake. Remember, 
Job descriptions tell us what to do. Purpose tells us how to do it. Define the purpose for your team so they know how to go about their work. Question number two, how do you know if you're winning? If you've defined the game that you're playing, then you better know how to win. I was with a team the other day and asked them how they knew if they were winning. They said, based on the mood of the doctor. If the doctor's in a good mood, that means we must be doing pretty good. If the doctor's in a bad mood, that means we have to work harder. Unfortunately, many teams are the same. Defining how you win starts with how you choose to keep score. Can you imagine attending any type of sporting event where they did not keep score? It's not likely that it would attract very many spectators if the players just dribbled the ball up and down the court and no one kept track of the score. Keeping score is a form of feedback. We all want feedback. It's why you look in the mirror in the morning. You want feedback to see what's changed overnight. So how do you keep score in your practice? Most people track production and collections, but that may be just the start. In baseball, for example, they not only track runs, but they track a host of other stats like hits, strikeouts, runs batted in, home runs, base hits, etc. The final score may be the only thing publicized at the end of the game on the scoreboard, but each team pours over the stats after the game to see how they might have played differently to win. All of those individual stats tell us volumes about how we play the game. Similarly, there are numerous stats or scores that tell us how we're performing in the dental practice. Those stats provide feedback on a daily basis on how we're playing the game and the degree to which we're winning. You might consider the final score, production and collections, but how we keep score in other areas can tell us even more. Let's take an example from hygiene. What would be a good way to keep score in hygiene to tell us if we're winning? Let's start with defining winning in the first place. What percentage of the population has some form of periodontal disease? 70%, 80%? Let's say it's 80%. So if we were winning in hygiene, we'd be treating disease 80% of the time, right? To see what we're actually doing we would compare the number of healthy mouth cleanings, or 1110s, compared to perio maintenance and perio treatment codes, 4910s and 4341s and greater. If we were winning the fight against disease and truly treating it, it would follow that a winning score would be 80%, 4910s and 4341 pluses, and only 20% or less of 1110s. In other words, we would be treating disease 80% of the time and doing healthy mouth cleanings 20% of the time. That would be a winning score. Unfortunately, in many practices, that score is reversed. 80% of the time, they're just cleaning teeth, not treating disease. But you would never know what's really going on unless you kept score. 
you have to have the feedback. How about another example from the restorative side of the practice? If you had a patient who had a multi-surface problem with a tooth and you had the choice of doing a three or four surface filling or doing a crown or an inlay or an onlay, what would you consider to be the optimal restoration? Most dentists would choose the crown or the inlay or onlay because it will be a better long-term restoration. So if you were to keep score in this area, you would compare the number of three and four surface fillings to the number of crowns or inlays. What would you consider to be a winning score in this area? It would follow if we're winning and doing what's best for the patient, at least 80% of the time, the optimal restoration would be done. If that's not the case, then we'd take a look at why. This is one statistic, for example, that may be the biggest symptom of approval addiction or caving into the self-deceiving behavior of thinking that you're doing the patient a favor by doing less expensive restorations so the patient will like you. The reality is that you're not doing anyone any favors. Not the patient, not you, and not the practice. A bad score in this area is a total lose-lose proposition. That's the value of keeping score. How about keeping score in the front office beyond production and collections? Score could be kept on the number of no-shows and cancellations, open appointment times, or continuing care visits scheduled. The key is that we tend to focus on the areas where we keep score or where we're getting the most feedback. One of my favorite statistics to track in the front office is the number of potential patient calls compared to the number of scheduled appointments. What would you consider to be a winning score in this area? 50, 70, 80%? For years, we thought converting 80% of the potential new patient calls into scheduled appointments was a winning score. So we tracked it on a daily basis. Everyone who scored 80% or higher was considered to have a winning score. And then one day, everything changed. I was reviewing the monthly scoreboards from the many practices we work with at the Total Patient Service Institute, and I was paying specific attention to the score in this area, calls to scheduled appointments. As expected, most of the scores were in the range of about 70 to 80% of calls to scheduled appointments. Then I stumbled across a scoreboard that said 130% calls to scheduled appointments. As I looked more closely, I was convinced that the business assistant who generated the report had made a mistake. She'd reversed the numbers. She was new, so I gave her a call. I reviewed everything with her and told her that she might want to check her math because it was calls to scheduled appointments, not the other way around. She immediately responded that her number was right. There was no error. So I asked, how do you schedule more appointments than you have people who called to schedule an appointment in the first place? Well, she said, let me explain it to you. She said, you see, I went to this really good seminar taught by this really good-looking, very intelligent guy. <laughs> she was getting way too much juice out of this. And she said one of the things that he kept going over and over and over again was the importance 
of asking. Ask, don't tell. Questions are the answer. Ask, ask, ask. So I figured the guy knew what he was talking about, so I came back and did exactly what he said. Every time a new patient scheduled, I just started asking, who else should we go ahead and schedule today? Well, it's convenient, and I have you on the phone. It's a funny thing, she said, but about one out of every three new patients will go ahead and schedule an additional family member if I just ask. It's one out of three. They say yes. That's how you get 138%. That was the day that we changed the definition of winning in that area. Instead of 80% being the winning score, we upped it to 130% plus. As a result, we've had two contests running ever since. One is who can schedule the most number of new patients out of one phone call. And the record to date is nine. Nine new patients scheduled out of one call. The other is who can get the highest calls to new patient scheduled ratio. The record, 168%. Think about it. That's a double in what we used to consider a winning score. All because we were keeping score in the first place and stumbled across a simple idea that has the potential to double results. So, how do you keep score? The way you keep score determines the specific things on which you and your team focus. If all you really track is production and collections, then it's just a production game. It's just about the money. If you track clinical ratios and numbers based on your clinical philosophy of care, then it's about walking your talk and delivering to your patient the kind of care in which you believe. Keeping score goes back to a basic fundamental habit of successful teams and successful people. That habit revolves around four questions that can be answered with a yes or a no. So answer each one of the following questions about yourself personally. Question number one, do you have goals? Question number two, are your goals written down? Question number three, do you review your goals every day? Question number four, do you carry your goals with you or do you physically see them every day? Now, if you were able to answer all four of those questions with a yes, you're part of the select few who tend to outproduce the rest combined. You see, winning is about defining the end result that you want and then keeping score along the way to measure your progress. Now, I asked you to answer those four questions personally. So how about professionally? Do you have team goals? Are they written down? Do you review those team goals every day? And do you have those goals posted somewhere so that the entire team can see them every day? The same rules apply. If you want to win, you have to define what winning is and then keep score every step along the way to measure your progress. So, to know if you're winning, do the following. One, define what winning is to you. How do you measure it? How do you know when you're winning? Two, write it down. 
what are the specific areas where you will measure and what's the score that you need to have to feel that you and your team are winning. Three, keep score on a time-sensitive basis. Some scores need to be kept daily. Keep that score visible and updated just like they do in an athletic competition. You never have to wonder what the score is. It's on the scoreboard for every team member to see at any moment. Do the same for your team. Let them see the feedback on their performance in real time so they can adjust their performance accordingly. It's said that the majority of games are won or lost in the last two minutes of the first and second half of the game. Why? Because when we can see the score in front of us at all times, it allows us to adjust our performance to achieve the goal. If we don't know the score, we have little to go by. Show the score. Number four, review the score on a regular basis. In some areas, that might be daily. In other areas, it might be weekly or monthly. The important part is to review and update your action plan accordingly so you can affect the score. Question number three, what's in your playbook? If you're going to play the game successfully, you have to have a playbook or a strategy. If you've ever coached any type of a sport like soccer or football or basketball, one of the first things you had to determine was your strategy. It would be irresponsible to show up as the leader of the team and just say, all right, play ball and let's win. (laughs) You have to have a strategy for winning. You have to have a playbook. A playbook contains the strategies and the systems that you employ to play the game. It's a document that puts in writing how your team uniquely plays the game. Now, my hometown in Texas boasts the high school football team with the most number of wins and most number of state championships to their credit of any other high school in the state of Texas. Winning is a tradition. One of the keys to the team's success is their playbook. From the time a boy first steps onto the football field in our town, no matter his age, he starts learning the team's offense. The offensive playbook is widely distributed to every age team, and they drill and practice that offense to the point that by the time a player reaches his senior year in high school, it's very possible that he's been learning practicing and running the same offensive strategy for 10 years, depending on when he started playing. One of this team's winning strategies is their playbook. They live by it and they use it every day at every age. If you spend any time with us at all at the Total Patient Service Institute seminars or in the Crown Council, you've heard about one of my mentors, Dr. W. Edwards Deming. Dr. Deming was an American who was sent on assignment from the United States government to help conduct the first census in Japan after World War II. In his spare time while he was there, he started sharing with the Japanese business community his philosophies about how to run a well-run business and how to produce quality product. His teachings were especially relevant at a time when Japan was rebuilding their entire economy after the war, and because Japan's reputation before the war 
was that it produced cheap products that were of poor quality and didn't last long. Deming showed them a different way. And because he was an American, they thought that he was showing them the American way of running a business. What they didn't know was that his ideas and philosophies had very little to do with how he did things in America. But they took what he taught them and rebuilt their entire economy on his ideas. To this day, the Japanese give Dr. W. Edwards Deming the credit for the rise of their economy after the war to being one of the top world economic powers. In fact, the most coveted prize given by the Japanese government to the best quality businesses in the country each year is named after an American. It's called the Deming Prize. Meanwhile, back in the United States, we didn't know who Dr. W. Edwards Deming was for over three decades after the war. Then we had an energy crisis in America. Oil prices went through the roof, lines went around the block to get a tank of gas, and suddenly a whole new breed of automobiles started showing up in America. From where else? But from Japan. In fact, these small, compact economy cars became so popular, we had to learn a whole new vocabulary in America with brands like Toyota, Honda, and Datsun which later became Nissan. And then the popularity spread to other goods, like electronics with products from Sony, Samsung, and Mitsubishi. Then one evening on the nightly news, Peter Jennings featured 80-year-old Dr. W. Edwards Deming as the man of the week and revealed to America the man behind the economic rise of Japan. And for the next 13 years, Dr. Deming was in and out of some of the biggest companies in America, teaching them what he had taught the Japanese over three decades earlier. I had the opportunity to spend an entire week with Dr. Deming just shortly before his passing. It was an amazing experience to sit at the feet of a man who was later named as one of the most influential people of the 20th century. Of the many things he shared, there was one that had a big impact. He said... 94% of success is in the system. In other words, if you want consistent, predictable results, you have to develop and then follow a system that's been proven to get those results. In other words, you need a playbook with proven systems that the whole team follows to win the game. Your playbook is an actual book. It might be a loose-leaf binder divided up into sections based on the different parts of your business. It contains the specific systems you employ to run the different aspects of your practice. For example, your playbook would contain your written clinical restorative philosophy of care so that everyone on the team knows and understands what the dentist is most likely to treatment plan under different circumstances and the philosophy or clinical belief that is behind that treatment plan. Similarly, your playbook would contain your periodontal philosophy of care, including your periodontal protocol of exactly how you treat different types of periodontal conditions and why you treat it that way. Your playbook would contain instructions and diagrams on how you have your treatment room set up, including the instruments you prefer and exactly how you prefer them to be organized. 
Your playbook would also contain business systems, like the exact protocol and verbal skills you use when scheduling a new patient. Your systems for scheduling continuing care, your financial arrangements, policies, and protocols, and your systems for financial management and collections, and more. In short, your playbook is your strategy for playing the game. Without a playbook, you leave each member to figure it out on his or her own. And then, with each person on his or her own, the practice becomes fragmented, disjointed, and disorganized. It becomes stressful and chaotic. There are two places where we see the lack of a playbook causing the biggest problems. First, the front office. Because the dentist is busy working on patients in the clinical area, it's too easy to just hire someone to work up front and be in charge of just taking care of everything. The dentist then goes back to work, hoping for the best up front and checking very little, if anything, to see except for what we produced and what we collected. There has to be a better way to run a business. With a playbook to run the business side of the practice, there are clear guidelines as to how everything should be done in order to get consistent, predictable results. Those working in the front office are accountable for running the practice according to the systems that have been put in place. Second, hygiene. It's too easy to default by hiring a hygienist to do hygiene with little or no direction or instruction. After all, a hygienist is a licensed professional that's been trained. Why not just hire the hygienist to do hygiene? The best practices don't just hire hygienists and put them to work. They bring a hygienist onto the team with the understanding that they, like everyone else on the team, will play the game on your team just like everyone else according to the team's playbook. The playbook has detailed information on the systems and protocols for the hygiene area of the practice, including perio protocol, continuing care philosophy and systems, protocols, and verbal skills for recommending things like fluoride, oral cancer exams, and whitening. The playbook puts everyone in the hygiene area of the practice on the same page, doing the same thing in the same way. With the playbook in place being executed every day, it gives patients the confidence that the quality of the care they receive in the practice is consistent. The quality of care should not be practitioner dependent. The patient should be a similar and should experience a similar level of clinical treatment and quality no matter the hygienist because everyone's playing out of the same playbook. Just as in every other area of the practice, 94% of success in hygiene is in the system. It's in the playbook. Finally, the construction of the playbook is not a one-time deal. It's a continuous process. Every day you get feedback from patients and feedback from your results. With that feedback, you continue to define systems and refine their finer points for better execution. The playbook is never finished. You can get started on your playbook today by simply gathering things that you do have and placing them in some type of organized fashion. It might be as simple as getting a loose-leaf binder to get started. Then set aside 30 minutes each month to work on the playbook with your team. 
document what you do and how you do it so that everyone knows their role, their responsibility, and exactly how to execute things in every area of the practice based on a strategy for winning the game. It's all in the playbook and how you execute the plays. Question number four, who's your coach? Every great team has a coach. The coach is the person who stays objective, is thinking ahead strategically, and managing the big picture. Even more importantly is the coach's main job. Here's what it is. Several years ago, I had the opportunity to spend four days learning from some of the greats in professional sports. We were privately corralled together in Pebble Beach, California, and assembled were athletes like Jerry Rice, one of the greatest wide receivers in NFL history, as well as sports managers and coaches like Billy Bean, the famed manager of the Oakland A's baseball team, who was the subject of the book and the movie entitled Moneyball, along with about 100 CEOs from all over the world. Now, these athletes, coaches, and managers shared with us lessons learned from professional sports that were applicable to business and everyday life. One evening, we all sat down for dinner in an open seating arrangement, and it was my privilege to sit next to Coach Chuck Daly, the former coach of the Detroit Pistons basketball team and coach of the 1992 Olympic Dream Team. That was the first year that professional basketball players were allowed to play in the Olympics, and Chuck Daly was tapped to be the coach. The team was described as the greatest collection of basketball talent on the planet, and perhaps the greatest sports team ever assembled. It consisted of all the greats of that era in basketball, including Michael Jordan, David Robinson, Patrick Ewing, Larry Bird, Scottie Pippen, Carl Malone, John Stockton, and Charles Barkley, among others. What Chuck Daly shared that evening was one of the greatest tutorials in leadership that I've ever received. For example... He said that it's a player's job to play. That's what great players do. They love the game, and they love to play it. One of his examples was who he called the easiest player to work with in the NBA. Who do you think that would be? Imagine my surprise when he said Dennis Rodman. Irreverent, tattoo, and drag-wearing Dennis Rodman? He said that Dennis was the perfect example of a great player in that as long as he had the ball or was on the court, he was the most coachable, easy-to-work-with person he had ever met. So it's the player's job to play, but it's the coach's job to make sure the team wins. Let me say that again. It's the player's job to play. It's the coach's job to make sure the team wins. There comes a point in almost every season, and it's usually sometimes during the playoffs when the players are tired of being on the road, sleeping in hotels, and working odd hours, and they just want to go home. That's when great coaching skill comes into play. A great coach knows how to pull the team together and help them win. So, who's the coach for the dental practice? Who is strategically working on the big picture to make sure the team wins? 
Who's looking down the road and posing the questions today that will determine the team's success tomorrow? It's not the dentist. The dentist is one of the players. Call the dentist the quarterback or the center if you want to extend the sports analogy. The dentist is in the game playing it every day. When you're in the game running every play, it's difficult to stay objective and strategically minded. The coach of a basketball team or a football team is not in center court or on the 40-yard line playing in the game. The coach is objectively strategizing, looking ahead, placing the right players in the right places and calling the right plays at the right time. The coach is making sure the team is doing everything they can to win. So if the dentist isn't the coach, who is? Your coach could take many forms. It could be a mastermind group that you meet with on a regular basis that shares their experiences and helps you see through the day-to-day minutia of running your business so you can stay focused on the few things that matter. Your coach might be a mentor or someone who's done successfully what you're trying to do and is willing to share with you how they did it. Or your coach might be a professional that specializes in working with teams to maximize their performance and position them to win. Most importantly, a coach is someone to whom you and the team are accountable. We all perform better when we know we have to answer to someone else for the results of our performance. It makes us better players and helps us stay focused on the purpose. So, there are the four critical questions for a winning team. One, what game are you playing or what is your purpose? Two, how do you know if you're winning or what are the objective measures you use to define success? How do you keep score? Three, what's in your playbook or what are your specific strategies and tactics that you use daily to play the game? Four, Who's your coach? Who are you accountable to for your results? Who's watching out for your team to make sure you win? So in summary, here are some specific actions you can take in each area of team success. One, what game are you playing or what is your purpose? So define the purpose of your practice. Make sure it reflects what you think is important. If you're not clear, borrow our purpose to create happy paying patients who repeat and refer and pay more than it costs to serve them. Next, share your purpose with the team. Discuss it. Talk about how it applies and plays out in day-to-day activity in the office. Make it come alive by discussing how each person can act on the purpose each day. And then finally, make it visible. Hang your purpose up in the break room where you can review it and refer to it often with the whole team. Two, how do you know if you're winning? How do you keep score? First, define what winning is to you. How do you measure it? How do you know when you're winning? Then, define the specific areas where you will measure and what the score is that you need to have to feel that you and your team are winning. Keep in mind that some of the most important areas of keeping score are in the clinical areas, not just the financial areas. Next, Create a scoreboard that everyone can see all the time. Update the scoreboard daily. 
then review the score on a regular basis. The scoreboard should be reviewed every morning in the morning opportunity meeting. And finally, change it up. From time to time, you might want to change some of the specific areas of scorekeeping. What you measure tends to get the most attention. Changing what you measure will change performance and results in those areas. In addition, make sure to keep your personal habits in place because personal habits spill over into professional habits. Remember the four goal questions. Do you have goals? Are your goals written down? Do you review them every day? Do you carry them with you? Or do you have them someplace where you see them every day? Personal habits translate into professional habits. Question number three, what's in your playbook? Start by using a loose leaf binder. Create sections for scheduling, financial arrangements, treatment room setup, clinical philosophy of care, hygiene protocol, meeting agendas, etc. Start filling in the sections that you've created. Write out what your procedure is in each area and how you expect your practice to be run. Just set aside 30 minutes a month to work on your playbook. That's a start. Then continually work on your playbook all the time. It's never finished. Fourth, who's your coach? Here's some suggestions. Who are your mentors in each area of your life? What are some other areas where you need additional mentors? Who's your mastermind group and how often do you meet? And finally, do you have a professional coach or could your practice benefit from one? Every winning team has an outstanding leader who took them to that point. It starts at the top. Take these four characteristics of a winning team to continue building and creating a culture of success in your practice. It all starts with you.